0: This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott.
1: Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Should babies sleep alone in cribs or in bed with their parents? What's the best way to bathe a newborn? Should parents talk to babies, or is it a waste of time? Well, it all depends on who you ask. In the Faroe Islands, which is a part of Denmark, babies always nap outdoors for a few hours every day to avoid indoor germs and to get the babies used to cold. Elsewhere in Europe, babies of Muslim immigrant families from Guinea, now living in Portugal, are always allowed to nap uninterrupted in case Allah might be sending angels delivering messages to the dreaming infant. And in West Africa, some people regularly talk to their babies, who are cherished as reincarnations of ancestors, and of course, they're able to understand all the languages of the world. But in East Africa, they typically don't talk to babies or toddlers at all because children in those societies are not permitted to respond to adult communications. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with an anthropologist and a co-author and editor of a book that talks about all of these things and a lot more from the perspective of babies all around the world. And it's absolutely fascinating the differences there are in cultures and traditions and in life circumstances. It's a lot different raising a baby in New York City than it is in a war-torn part of Africa. I'm Armin Braun. We'll get into all of that and a lot more about babies around the world when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital.
0: You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call one eight six six no attacks Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Alma Gottlieb, who is the co-author and one of the editors of A World of Babies, Imagined Child Care Guides for Eight Societies. Alma, thanks for joining us.
2: You bet. Thanks for asking.
1: Tell us a little bit about the the book. I think it's, it's a really interesting structure in the, the imagined. I mean, you really have to... Pay close attention to the subtitle. Imagine Child Care Guide. So this is like you're all of a sudden visiting another country, and this is what they would be telling parents to do as opposed to the stuff that we get in the United States, which is kind of United States-focused.
2: That's exactly right. So in the U.S., uh, we have at least 2,000 books in print in English uh, that tell parents how to raise children. That's a whole lot of books. (laughs) Um, If you're writing a book that's a how-to book whether it's how to raise children or how to fix your car or any other kind of how-to subject the assumption i think on the part of the reader is that the author is an expert knows what they're talking about and even though they've never fixed my car or raised my baby Somehow the knowledge they have is generic enough that it's going to work for me, right?
1: Well, because we've got data to back that up and studies and uh, all sorts of focus groups and everything. One would hope. (laughs) Yeah, at least that's what they tell us, yeah.
2: So the premise behind this book is um, there's something basically wrong with that one-size-fits-all model, at least when it comes to babies. It might work for fixing cars. But when it comes to babies... Um, all babies aren't created alike, all parents aren't created alike, and more importantly, all societies and all opportunities aren't created alike. So if we pick up any one of the 2,000 books in English um, that tells us how to raise a child, what we realize is there's a whole bunch of assumptions embedded in these books that assume a certain lifestyle and assume certain values and assume certain opportunities or lack of opportunities on the part of the parents. And if we challenge those and recognize that this is a very diverse world, that all parents don't have the same goals, don't have the same values, don't have the same opportunities, don't believe in the same God, gods or no gods, um, then suddenly the advice that we're reading in these 2,000 books starts looking very problematic. Well, Alma,
1: let me just have you go back just a second and explain a little bit what are those common goals and and aspirations and and things that you're talking about, as far as the way that the books are are aimed sure in, in the ones in English
2: yes, so it's very common to assume in the books oriented towards american middle class white families, and I should um also point out that that's the assumed audience for most of these books, even if they don't say that <laughs> american middle class white babies. Um, it's assumed that the goal is to raise an independent child Uh, sometimes the author will be uh, explicit about that and sometimes it's sort of implicit more of a hidden agenda but uh... if you look at overwhelmingly all the advice about what to do about baby sleeping the goal is to get babies to sleep by themselves for long periods of time in a room by themselves in a bed by themselves, all night, without bothering anybody. That sounds like a reasonable goal for many of us. It's not the goal for most of the world's parents. Um, and it probably has not been the goal for most of humanity for the past 100,000 years of our species' history of being modern humans.
1: So, so I want to ask you... modern goal. I want to ask you something now, and I'm, I'm wondering if I'm going to ask you this in, in 20 minutes when we're kind of done here. <laughs> but did you find, and, you, and you're... There are a number of different cultures, and so there's eight, eight different societies that are not American. Did you come across a, a best practices kind of a thing that could apply here, lessons that we could learn from these some of the other countries? And we'll talk about some of the specific ones, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. generally speaking, you've got so now eight test tubes. Um <laughs> What do you? Is there a best way to do it? I mean, is, should we, for example, not be aiming towards having a, a baby sleep in a bed by himself in a room by himself?
2: As an anthropologist, I won't make statements like there's a the best way, but what I will say is there are a whole lot of good ways that seem to make sense. So, for example, in America, a lot of new parents go crazy trying to get their kids to sleep through the night babies aren't hardwired to do that um, for a long time. It's sort of bucking against our biological mandate. So it takes a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of crying. Um, and if parents are uncomfortable with letting their kids cry, and there are lots of books out there about how long you should let your kids cry um, before you can train them. Um, some parents just feel like their hearts are going to break if they listen to their kid cry another minute or another hour. Um, what, I, what I can tell them is if you decide to try a different pack and sleep with your baby, um, the baby will probably fall asleep a lot faster. There'll be a whole lot less crying um, and the baby will come out fine because that's how we've been doing it for 100,000 years. I'm not going to say it's the best way to do it, because there's a different goal. The goal there is to make the baby comfortable, and part of the idea of making the baby comfortable is um, enveloping the baby in a communal circle of love, not to be independent, but to feel that the baby's part of a community of caring, loving people who uh, want to protect them. Different goal. Uh, If you're okay with that goal, that process makes sense.
1: I think a lot of people, though, here anyway, would say that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's and not something it, that we're against, anyway.
2: Yeah. In, increasingly in American middle-class society, co-sleeping is becoming something that's no longer at least taboo to talk about. Until probably 10 years ago, it was really taboo to even discuss it. Um, when I discussed it with my pediatrician, um, he just immediately shut it down and told me about all the dangers and under no circumstances could I ever try that. Well, now, it's I, still
1: not recommended by the American Academy. No, it's Academy. still not recommended. Yeah.
2: It's still not by most places. And there are cities, New York and Milwaukee are two, that have public health campaigns with lots of dollars behind them to print signs and buses and subways warning people not to do it. And there are dangers. If you're going to co-sleep with a baby you have to know how to do it safely. You can do it safely and you can do it um, dangerously. Um, and most doctors aren't trained in that. They're just trained in in the danger. Um, well, you know, it's one, it's one of
1: these things that sort of strikes me. I, t- I teach classes for expectant fathers and so I go in, get into this a little bit. But it's, it's almost like the parallel with whether it's okay to drink a, have a glass of wine during pregnancy that mm-hmm. somebody who recommends that is setting himself up for a lawsuit if a baby is anything other than 100% perfect and you could say well my pediatrician recommended sleeping with the baby and I ended up you know getting drunk or rolling over the baby which is how those things generally happen when somebody's drunk or or mm-hmm. incapacitated and it just seems like there's the the, the legal aspect of it, the, the, the fear of the legal aspect of it that comes in to some of yeah, these things.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really sharp observation. So I guess if I had another point to make about best practices, it would be when we're keeping in mind what are best practices, let's keep the babies in mind, not lawsuits in mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk a, a little bit um, about some of these, I think some of the specific ones. Let's talk about yeah. China. Okay. They have certainly a lot more babies than we do. Mm-hmm. And what are they doing differently that that we are not doing?
2: China is a fascinating society undergoing uber-rapid social change, economic change, political change. And a lot of practices that are um, common today in cities with middle-class families are quite different from what they're grandparents or even parents would have done uh, just a generation ago Uh, so for me as an anthropologist one of the interesting things to look at in China is what happens to a society when intimate practices surrounding the family change so much Um, so our chapter in the book on China focuses on how young mothers are adapting traditional Chinese practices of Bringing the mother in law into the family. And traditionally, mothers in law had an enormous role in raising their grandchildren. And young brides, uh, when they moved in with their husbands, moved in with their husbands' families, and in many ways adapted to their mothers in law, living with their mothers in law, and, and forging that relationship more than they did uh the relationship with their husbands. Uh they had in some ways had more of a daily relationship with their mothers in law than with their husbands. That's still sort of the case in urban societies, except that young educated middle class women don't always like that. <laughs> they are not being raised to be submissive the way the previous generations of young women were raised. And they're not kicking their mothers in law out the change isn't that profound but they're sometimes starting to challenge uh, the advice that their mothers-in-law are giving them. So in our chapter, uh, we highlight a little tussle between how a pregnant woman should stay healthy and feed her growing fetus. Uh, This modern pregnant young woman is taking prenatal vitamins on the advice of her doctor. Her mother-in-law is scoffing at that. Saying She doesn't know what's in these vitamins. In fact, uh, the lack of something like an FDA in China means that what's in these vitamins may not at all be related to what the label claims. (laughs) And uh, her daughter-in-law should be paying a whole lot more attention to nourishing soups and other traditional foods that would nourish a pregnant mm-hmm. woman rather than these vitamins. So there's a real kind of tug-of-war between, we might say, tradition and modernity right. uh, going on.
1: Alma, um, well, let, let me stop you there for just one second. We've got to take a quick break. Talking to Alma Gottlieb, who's the co-author and co-editor of A World of Babies, Imagine Childcare Guides for Eight Societies. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking about babies. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braat. If you're just joining us, talking with Alma Gottlieb, who is the author, editor of A World of Babies, Imagine Child Care Guides for Eight Societies. Wondering about, as China, in interesting cases, they're, they're moving from more traditional to more modern in every aspect of their lives. What's going on over there? What do they think about vaccines, which is such a, a big issue here? Are, are they looking at vaccines with suspicion, or are they looking at it in a scientific way? What's their, their take?
2: That vaccine controversy that's gaining so much traction in the U.S. I don't think has gotten to be so controversial um, elsewhere. Um, in parts of Africa that I've um, been familiar with firsthand, uh, I've seen issues with vaccines not concerning villager suspicion, but rather uh, lack of access. Uh, So what's so common here uh, to the point where people can even reject vaccines uh, is still a luxury in many parts of the global south.
1: Wait, it's uh, a luxury some, to be able to reject them or a luxury no, to be able to, to have them? to receive
2: them, to get uh. access to vaccines, uh, not in China, but in parts, many parts of Africa, rural Africa, rural India, um, some of the poorest countries in the world, people still don't have access to reliable vaccines. Um, so the kind of suspicion that we see in some communities in the U.S. I think is a luxury based on universal access. <laughs> That's a luxury that much of the third world or developing
1: world doesn't yet have. You know, a couple of the chapters you talk about are areas where there are, well, to say to say the least, strife: uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Somalia. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about those and the the challenges that parents are facing raising babies in a in a time where I mean, not only are there not vaccines, but there lack of hospital facilities and lack of yeah. basic prenatal care and and parenting advice. I mean, you know, what, what are they doing over there and how are yeah. they coping with all of these things?
2: Good, thank you for that question. And we really wanted to shine a bright spotlight on some of these very difficult situations because uh, now more than ever, there's such a tendency in comfortable societies uh, to demonize migrants and refugees and war-torn nations Uh, to see the victims as uh, guilty of uh, crimes when they're really uh, the victims of these crimes and we tend to focus on adults um, and seeing the challenges for raising a child in a situation like that is almost unimaginable if we think about middle class parenting in relatively comfortable circumstances and all the challenges that we endure just getting our kids through adolescence, even in the face of, you know, relative uh, abundance. Imagine those kinds of challenges when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, if you don't know if you'll be kicked out of your house, if your house will be bombed, uh, if uh, you'll have to walk 30 miles to a doctor with a sick child. The, The challenges are almost unbelievable, and we have very little... Reporting of those kinds of challenges. So, we probably overrepresented those kinds of societies in the book because they're so underrepresented in so much of the discussion about refugees and right. difficult war-torn places. Well, how
1: do they deal with that, though? I mean, how?
2: With incredible courage and creativity. Um, you know, in our chapter about Palestinians, um, we have advice to a Palestinian mother. Um, who is separated um, from her husband during much of her pregnancy uh, because of economic challenges. And uh, she has a way to communicate with him, and they're corresponding back and forth during her pregnancy. She's saying she'd like to visit him for one of the Muslim holidays while she's pregnant. He discourages her and says it's too dangerous, and she says, "I, I just miss you. She hasn't seen him in a long time while she's pregnant. And these are yeah. the kinds of challenges that are almost unmanageable, unmanageable, unimaginable for people living in relatively peaceful uh, places. So these yeah. women and you know their families are creative in just dealing day to day with the challenges.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the the one chapter from moving from Mogadishu to Minneapolis, mm-hmm. where you're really taking. I mean, in China, the you're, you're there and you have the mix of the old and the new in mm-hmm. one place, but coming from a more traditional society in, in Mogadishu and then dropping into 21st century Minnesota, I mean, mm-hmm. a, aside from the snow, which must mm-hmm. be a, a tremendous shock to the, <laughs> to anybody yeah. who's lived in Africa, Indeed. but, you know, what? How, how are they even coping with it? Because it's, it's not like they even have access anymore to the traditional stuff.
2: Right. Well, there are, many of them are trying to recreate some kind of traditional Somali village life in urban Minneapolis by um, living in high-rise apartments that are mostly occupied by fellow Somalis. So they are almost creating like a little mini-urban village. But it's not a full enclave by any means. The kids are going to, for the most part, public schools. They are inserted into public health Uh, structures, the fathers uh, usually, and in some cases mothers, are working in, you know, broader society, Minneapolis, and so they're by no means isolated, and um, imagine being uh, suddenly transported to a new society where you don't speak the language uh with where your religion is not only a minority religion but it's demonized as the worst most violent most dangerous religion on the planet <laughs> um, where uh the color of your skin also uh leaves you vulnerable to racist bullying and taunting uh and where poverty uh means that Uh, you're living in a food desert and are going to wind up with all sorts of new health challenges, right? And these are just multiple scales of challenges. And when we look at overall how well the Somali society is doing in places like Minneapolis, Detroit, Columbus, are the three big places uh, with sizable Somali populations, it's a miracle. Uh, It's a miracle that most of them are doing decently well. In all of these places, Somali businesses um, have thrived. Uh, They've improved the local economies of the uh, spaces that they've inhabited because they have a tremendous amount of of business know-how and savvy. Uh, The children are being diagnosed with higher levels of autism than the American population at large. It's not clear whether those are misdiagnoses or there really is a higher level of Autism, sometimes diagnoses of behavioral issues like autism can result from cultural miscommunication. So that's a whole new yeah. um sphere to look at.
1: Now one chapter that that stands out a little bit as being different from the rest in many ways is the one about Nordic kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that seems to be much more kind of what we what you talked about in the beginning is the the assumed audience of middle class white folks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the Faroe Islands are a, a quasi-independent offshoot of Denmark, one of the Scandinavian states that has a very strong socialist economy. In effect, it can be called a welfare state insofar as people's welfare is seen as very much wrapped up in government initiatives. That sounds scary and horrible to many Americans. If we look at the state of things in Denmark, uh, we find uh, quite a lot of pretty content people. They're paying very high taxes but getting very high services as a result. So for uh, pregnant women, for example, um, they get uh, fully free nursing care from midwives who have been trained for, I believe it's four years of nothing but midwifery training, so very, Hmm. very intense uh... medical and emotional and right. technical training and then for a full year after the baby is born uh... that same midwife comes to visit them at least once a month um, and if there are any issues going on it could be as much as once a week in a home visit for free no um, right. expenses and she forms motherhood groups uh, of mothers in the neighborhood to get to know one another. So lots and lots of services paid for by the government to promote uh, social and medical well-being. It's a very different model yeah. um, of a community looking out for each other rather than an individual mom looking out for her own baby.
1: Alma, um, we only have like 10 seconds. just wanted to put you on the spot. If you had to raise a child in another country besides the United States, where would you do it?
2: Well, the Scandinavian countries sure make it easy for us. <laughs> um, with yeah. a year of paternity or maternity leave paid uh, and a guarantee of coming back to that same salary and that same job, uh, what parent wouldn't want that?
1: <laughs> That's a good argument. Alma Gottlieb is the co-author, co-editor with Judy Deloche of, of the book called A World of Babies, Imagine Childcare Guides for Eight Societies. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. You know, as we talk more and more about globalization, I get a question more and more often about learning second languages. Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I are both American and speak only English. We've heard that it's good to expose children to other languages. Is it really? If so, when and how do we do it? Well, there's absolutely no question that learning a second language is good for kids and adults. And here's a little bit of information on why that is. First, it boosts academic achievement. Literally dozens of studies have found that children who study a foreign language get better grades and score higher on standardized tests. More specifically, kids who learn more than one language do better than their monolingual, those are kids who learn only one language, peers, on verbal and math exams. Yes, math. According to some experts, a new language requires an understanding of patterns and deciphering puzzles, both of which are related to mathematics. Multilingual kids also demonstrate better grammar usage, reading ability, spelling, and vocabulary in their native language. It's good for the brain. Children who learn additional languages have longer attention spans and better memory. They also have better listening and critical thinking skills and are more creative problem solvers. It's good for the brain later in life, too. A study published in the Journal of Neurology found that people who speak a second language develop dementia an average of four and a half years later than those who speak only one language. What's even more fascinating about this study is that it found the same benefits in people who were illiterate. And the more languages, the better. Magali Perquin, a researcher at the Public Research Center for Health in Luxembourg, studied men and women who spoke 2 to 7 languages. Perquin found that those who spoke 3 were three times less likely to have cognitive problems than bilinguals. Again, those who spoke only two languages. And those who spoke four were more than five times less likely to develop cognitive problems than bilinguals. Pretty cool. It could also help with employment. The U.S. may be the dominant economic power in the world, but when it comes to jobs, Americans are competing against people from all over the world. Speaking more than one language opens up job possibilities in other countries and with U.S. companies that do business overseas. A study done at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, which has a foreign language requirement and is where I got my MBA, found that graduates felt that knowing a foreign language had given them a competitive advantage in getting hired and improved their career path. It shrinks the world. Knowing other languages, even just a little bit, makes it easier and a lot more fun to travel and experience other cultures. Now, as far as where to begin, the simple answer is as soon as possible. Some studies indicate that starting at about the time puberty kicks in, we lose the ability to hear and reproduce sounds from other languages. That explains why most people who move to a new country as adults can't ever quite lose their accent. But their children master the host language, including idioms, slang, and even swearing, accent-free. Since you and your husband speak only English, teaching your child the new language will be challenging but there are some great resources out there. Just Google language learning for kids. The two I'm most familiar with are Whistlefritz, which is whistlefritz.com, and Little Pim, littlepim.com, both of which are a great way to introduce your child and yourself to another language. Just pick the one you like, and you'll learn vocabulary, conversation, songs, and even some culture. Hey, if you got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting, please drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We do love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with another segment, but don't go anywhere quite yet. There's a lot more Positive Parenting coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin brought after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
3: In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already out him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European Pro Golf Tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice one in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Else encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
0: Get ready for more Positive Parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second part of today's show. I'm Armin Brott. Very glad you stood with us. Imagine if every time you praise your child with good job, you're actually doing more harm than good. And what about if asking a child, can you say thank you, is exactly the wrong way to go about teaching manners? And would you still say, I'm going to tickle you, if you knew it had as much potential to terrorize as to delight? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about language. And we're going to find out how, despite the very best intentions that we have, our language is also controlling, condescending, and ultimately harmful to our kids. We're going to be focusing on a number of different examples of parent speak and talk about the often disconnect between the messages that we think we're sending and the ones that our children are actually hearing. Now, of course, this is positive parenting, so we're not going to spend the whole show criticizing the way that you speak to your parent and insinuating that you're a bad parent because of the way that you speak and the language that you're using. No, no, no. We're actually going to be spending most of our time talking about some conscious, compassionate approaches to parenting and some suggestions about how you can respond instead of the way that you might instinctively have responded otherwise. We'll start talking about the undeniable power of language and how it affects our kids and ourselves when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
4: Hi, it's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking, now what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? (laughs) Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs, and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice, thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep, a little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parent Speak, What's Wrong with How We Talk to Our Children and What to Say Instead. Jennifer, thanks for being on the show.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: So let's talk a little bit about how you made this discovery, which I think is probably something that a lot of parents eventually get to, that the, the approach that I'm taking with my children, my best intentions notwithstanding, it just isn't working.
5: How did I get here? Well, I when I first had my daughter, I think I was fairly ill prepared for parenthood, and you know, like everybody else, I had the best intentions, and um, really had actually a fairly easy daughter. What I noticed as I was going out into the world, you know, we would go to the park every day and there was a lovely group of parents we'd hang out with or I'd go to the pediatrician or we'd go shopping at the market. What I noticed was that all of a sudden, not only was I speaking in a different way, but friends of mine, all, all everyone I encountered started to use this language that I didn't really hear them use all that often. It was like once you, a child landed in your lap, you started speaking what I... It called in my own head, parents speak. It was like you had a child, and then you started saying, like, oh, my God, she's so cute. (gasps) Good job. (gasps) Look what you can do. And then they're crying. It's okay. You're okay. And it actually got to the point where I felt like I could predict what adults were going to say to children in a variety of circumstances. And I thought to myself eventually, after several months of witnessing this and kind of becoming more and more aware of it was that it was like yes you know it was it's a cultural thing it's in the ether we you know we have kids and we start talking in these specific catchphrases but what i started to wonder was am i speaking to my child in the unique circumstances and individual in front of me or is kind of my culture speaking through me is this what i want to be saying is this helpful are my best intentions translating. And I would just think about this very casually, but as time wore on, uh, I really thought about it um, more pointedly, and it took me a while. I started writing a book. I just actually sat down and started writing to see, try to make sense of my thoughts. And And I... Anyways, go ahead. No, I'm just
1: I'm so I'm curious so we so we have a whole bunch of them. In the book you've got 14 different ones and we're not yes, going to get not going to get to all of them
5: that I'm selecting. Sure. Right,
1: right. We're not going to get to all those things, but but start with something like good job, which you know, there's a lot of of information yeah. out there about you know, f- praise that that's uh, that ends up doing more harm than good. But generally speaking, what what's the problem with saying good job and and encouraging effort or are you actually encouraging results?
5: You know, what's interesting about good job is that we use it in so many different circumstances. We use it to be encouraging. We use it to tell kids we're happy with what they did. We use it to tell them we like their artwork. We use it in in so many different ways. We use it to say thank you instead of saying thank you to show that we're appreciative, they've cleared the table or cleaned their room, we say good job. And um, there there are a number of things that are wrong with good job, and then other things aren't wrong with it, but what I find fascinating, just kind of as an aside, is that we use two of the most generic words to send many different messages to our kids. So if my child is showing me a painting and I say good job, they feel good and they go on their way and I go back to whatever I'm doing. But I often think it's a a missed opportunity because if they showing if my son is showing me a painting and i'll say how did you decide to use all that red or why did you draw that i noticed such and such he'll say i'm doing that because my um friend at school was doing black and i didn't like how they were doing it and then a whole world opens up and we have an entire conversation when i just ask, can you tell me about it instead of telling them how good I think what they did is. And I'm not a child art critic. I don't, what does my opinion matter, really? It's more about Hmm. um, the process. Then another example, like I had mentioned, is if my child clears the table, and if I say good job, I'm not really saying you've done a really good job of picking up a plate and walking it across the room. Uh, What I mean to say is thank you for doing that. It makes my life easier, and it shows that you're, a participating member of the family. So a simple thank you is so much, I think, yeah. more meaningful than uh, good job is inherently judgmental. So if they didn't do a good job, is it a bad <laughs> job? or am I, I? And if they didn't clear the table, I can say, you know, when you don't clear the table, it makes me feel more taken advantage of that you just think all this work is for me to do. You know, it's like... Good job doesn't get information across. Right. It's, so I'm, um, I'm
1: curious about this. I'm doing yeah. kind of this informal poll just from time to time, and I kind of have a feeling how you're going to answer this question. But okay, uh, what do you think about the word awesome?
5: <laughs> you I mean, know, it, it drives actually, me completely I actually crazy. use it yeah. a lot. Oh no, um, okay. and it, it's very similar to good job, but I only use it when, like, my son loves to do flips, and and he oh, that's um, when pretty he does awesome. flips, I'll say that's awesome. Because I, and I'm and basically saying, I'm impressed. I'm not you know, I'm impressed with what you're doing. And he'll say, yeah, but that one sucked. For he, he is such a critic of himself. Like, he's so far ahead of me in being able to judge a flip. So it doesn't really matter what I think of it. What he de- wants to do when he shows me a flip is to show me what he's learned. He wants to share his passion with me. He doesn't want me to judge it because for him, genuinely speaking, my judgment is irrelevant. He's the one who spends hours watching flippers on YouTube. He knows if it's good or not. He just wants to show me what he's up to, and for someone, you know, for to show that share with his mom his, his passions, and I want to show him that I'm interested. And it's awesome. <laughs> I can't do that.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. So what about something that that I think a lot of people use? I'm not sure. You have it in the category of manipulation but I don't know if yes. it, people deliberately That's manipulate. The
5: way that I think it's most damaging. Yeah. But,
1: the, well, I was going to go to to another one within that same category of oh, okay. big boy, big girl kind of stuff, which we, oh, we yeah. tend to, you know, do you want to get into your big girl bed or whatever it is? And and I had never really thought about it as being manipulative, but I guess it, it could be.
5: Yeah, I think it absolutely is. You know... If you just bought a quote-unquote big girl bed, a regular bed, they're not even a big girl bed, it's just a bed, and and waited for the child to make their own move from the crib to the bed without us selling it, big girl is a sales tool. We're pitching to them that if you are better, if you go sleep in the bigger bed than the crib. Otherwise, why are we doing it? I mean, it's it's on our agenda, on our timeline, and often it happens when somebody's pregnant and they have another child coming up and they don't want to spend another $600 on the crib. They will have a bed for their older child and try to sell them on it. And, you know, two- or three-year-olds, in the scheme of things, aren't big. You know, they're still very young little people, and they'll get to the bed, in my opinion, when they're ready, and we don't need to sell them on it because if they're not ready – they may feel like, oh, my God, now I'm not a big girl. Mommy's disappointed in me, and I feel not ready. And, you know, you kind of set your kids up to telling them bigger is better. And then, ironically, at the other end, we're like, you know, we put on the brakes. You're too young for this movie or or dating or anything. So we want to have quickly grow up, get rid of your blanket, get rid of your pacifier, get out of the crib, and then we want them to slow down. And we don't really trust their own timeline. And I think we could trust kids a lot more.
1: And and they really aren't that big, I think. And they probably no, they, they they all. probably recognize they're,
5: that. Right. Oh, you're a big sister now. Yeah, I'm two. I'm an older sister. But and, you know, technically you are bigger than the newborn. <laughs> but yeah. but you don't have to you know, we sell them on this idea, oh, it's gonna be great to be a big sister. It's often very upsetting and scary for children to have um, a new sibling come in the house at first. You know, you get all your parents' attention, and then a new crying human comes, and you get less attention. And even if your parents make every effort, they'll never, ever, ever get as much attention as you once had before another sibling came along. It's just not possible. So there's often a period of mourning for children. But when we try to tell them, oh, how great it is to be a big sister, we kind of deny their experience, which makes it harder for them to get over, I think.
1: I've been talking with Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parent Speak, What's Wrong with How We Talk to Our Children and What to Say Instead. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jennifer about the things we shouldn't say and what we ought to. I'm Armin Brot, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
0: Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't reckon with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armand Brant, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Lear, who's the author of Parent Speak, What's wrong with how we talk to our children and what to say instead? Uh, so want to get on to some, some of the other ones that, that come in here, things like, you know, that I think a lot of parents say with, with the intention of instilling good manners in our children, uh, things like, can you say thank you or share or say you're sorry, that sort of stuff, where I, th- I think the, the intention is, well, kids don't naturally know to say they're sorry or that this, they should say thank you, so we need to tell them these things. So what, what's your thinking about why comments like that or directives like that are problematic?
5: Those are three very big ones, and I think they're all problematic for different reasons. But overall, um, it's, we have a very strong need to look good in front of other parents. So if we're leaving a play date and our chi- picking up our child, and of course we want our child to thank the parents often certainly and this starts very young at two years old three years old four years old we ask the children to can you thank so and so for having you over now it's my contention that children will learn to say please and thank you and uh, um, uh, and follow other rules of etiquette if we model them and i mean model them consistently because to me, if I turn to my daughter and tell her what to say in front of somebody else, that's not very polite. It's it's putting what I want before her dignity, because if I said to you, can you thank me for having you on your show? I mean, <laughs> you don't want to well, be thanking somebody under those circumstances. And yet, as a culture, we genuinely don't seem to care how genuine a thank you is. We just want them to know that they have to say it when we want them to say it at the exact moment. And so my approach is to take more of what I call a wingman approach. And if I'm leaving a play date with my child, I'll say, thank you so much for having her. She had a wonderful time, I know, and we'd love to have your child over and thanks so much. And usually she'll follow my lead or she'll take notice that this is when you say it and she'll notice that the other, it makes other people happy to hear it. She'll take in that information and eventually she'll get there herself. She won't say it maybe at two or three all the time but and I've had great success with this with my children. They come to say it on their own three, four, five, six later on and they'll say thank you at times we don't think are, is appropriate because they genuinely feel it and for me I think it's it's better late than coerced. That's my motto. So if if for some reason my child has forgot to say thank you for a gift or something, and I jump in and say thanks so much, when we get home I'll, or when we're out of sight of the person, I'll say, oh, I worried that she didn't think you appreciated it, and she's like, oh no, I did. I was just thinking about something else. Oh, how would you like to say thank you? And then we can decide together. Maybe a phone call, send a text with a photo, or. You know, even an old-fashioned thank-you note. It's And I find people are genuinely delighted and that they live through the two seconds of not having their gift or um, <laughs> their play date thanked in that moment because they've already been thanked by me, the adult, who knows who knows etiquette right. more inside and out.
1: Well, you mentioned gift. Now, that's something I think is a little bit different than a play date. I mean, if somebody, if, if there's a holiday or if somebody gives you a, a, a nice birthday present, that's a little yes, harder it, to not say thank you for and, and have well, that be it, okay. And I think Isn't it very
5: it? comes with age because a a three year old doesn't understand that they should say thank you for something that they don't really like. I remember my <laughs> yeah. uh, my cousin uh, my cousin's son, so a second cousin. I gave him a gift, and I he was crestfallen. He hates jeans. He, he has, I didn't realize this, he hates the feeling on his skin, and I got him what I thought was the cutest jean jacket, and he was so excited to open it, he tore into it, and convention would have him say, thank you to me, but he just was so excited, and he was crestfallen, and I said, oh, you don't really like this gift, do you? And he said, I hate how jean feels on my skin, and I said, Let's return it, and you and I go shopping together. And he was so delighted by that. He said, thank you. And then we actually went out and had a good time together when we normally wouldn't have. So I appreciated the fact that he could still be real. I know by the time he was seven, he would probably say thank you and suck it up and not share that with me. But I was hoping that I was opening up like I'm someone you can be honest with, and and I actually think it's better. In some
2: circumstances,
5: certainly. Yeah, and
1: so I, wouldn't you say that there's a there's a place for I hate this yes, you know, the white but, but lie I, kind do, of a thing, or understanding that what you say now yes, could affect them? Yeah, and that's
5: when you're older. I think yeah. that you can start gauging that. But once we put on children who uh, don't, they have not been. I'm not dying to rush children into white lies. I would love rather have them be more authentic and an adult be able to handle the fact that the child is disappointed. Um, And I know this is counter to popular um, culture because it really was so much more meaningful to me to understand this information about my cousin and to then have a lovely time shopping with him. And all of that loveliness would have been lost if he had to say, thank you so much, I love it. And I would say, you're welcome.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, another thing that you didn't talk about this in the book, but I, I would imagine that you think about this kind of thing. Um, threats that don't ever come true. I mean, threats that are not threat, like I'm going to do something to you, but, oh, if you do that, you're going to slam your hand in the door and there's, you're going to break a bone or you're going to put somebody's eyes out. Those kinds of things Wait, I, I, kind I think kind of be more about. under
5: the category of be careful. I do have a chapter on be careful. Um, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, and to that, I would say... I absolutely would teach my children not to run into the street, you know when they're too young to i would I go to the curb, look, cars are coming by. If you go um, step into it, it's very dangerous, And it's my responsibility as an adult to watch my child, who's cognitively too young to totally take in that information and say and make sure she doesn't get go into the street and otherwise play in a different part, you know, play in the backyard where it's safe if I want to take my eyes off them, and they will learn that you have to, um, you know, not step into into the street. But in terms of um, playing, I really trust humans to, because we're born with so many senses and everything that we're doing at all times... particularly babies they're just taking in everything they're in a constant state of learning so they're scientists they're grabbing things holding on seeing if they need to go tighter go duck under they don't want to instinctually they don't want to die or hurt themselves as much as we don't want them to that's why we have these senses they've been honed over hundreds of thousands of years and so if we can trust our kids and the way to do that is to observe them because you as much if you could spend 20 minutes a day watching your baby grow you can see what they're capable of and it's pretty miraculous and like i said my son is a flipper he does incredible things it, he he makes most people's hearts stop but i am and i am a very anxious person but i am so confident in his ability to gauge what his, his he can do that i turn it over to him
2: otherwise i couldn't live <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would think so. So you're you're giving him a lot of flexibility and putting a lot of trust in him, and then you've got something—a a chapter which is, I, I think, also very interesting about it, behave yourself, which is which seems to imply to it that you add to, that the child already knows what behave yourself means in every situation. It's kind of like the thank yous. Is that something that they grow into, or do we assume that My they know? My
5: point in that chapter in behave yourself is. If you are asking them to do something that's reasonable and they're not doing it, then their behavior is meeting a more important need for them. So, for instance, if my child is screaming or cranky or something and I am asking them to be quiet and they're just not responding, usually they're tired or hungry or they haven't had enough chance to run around and they have that energy in their body so if I'd say go outside instead of telling a child to sit quietly because I want them to I'd say it sounds like you need to get energy out can you go outside and do that does that make sense it does it does yeah
1: (laughs) and I've been speaking with Jennifer Lear who's the author of Parents Speak what's wrong with how we talk to our children and what to say instead Jennifer thanks for joining us